welcome to the Brain for Business podcast with me, Lauren Snell, where we take the lessons from evidence-based academic research, most particularly involving the brain, behavioral and organizational sciences, and translate them in a way that is accessible for leaders and organizations. As always, make sure to follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn, or else we look forward to your feedback and comments by email to laurie at brainforbusiness.ie. We all know that, to a certain extent, cultures differ between countries. When we travel or work with people from different backgrounds, we often gain unexpected insights into different traditions and different ways of doing things. Yet, have you ever stopped for a moment to think about what this thing culture actually is? How can it be understood and and how can we possibly strengthen our understanding of culture, but also our intercultural skills? To dig a bit deeper into this question, I'm delighted to be joined today on the podcast by Professor Eamon Olin of Trinity Business School in Dublin. Eamon Olin is Assistant Professor of International Business and Director of the Flexible Executive MBA program at Trinity Business School. She gained her PhD in international management from the University of Limerick, where she investigated the cultural adjustment and fit of internationally trained doctors working in Ireland. Prior to joining Trinity Business School, Ema held academic positions in the UK and the USA. Ema is also a co-country investigator for Ireland and the UK on the world-renowned GLOBE Project 2020. Her research interests are in expatriate adjustment, cultural intelligence, recruitment and retention strategies, ethics, and the healthcare sector. Ema, welcome to Brain for Business. Hi, Lawrence. Thank you very much for the invite. We're, we're really keen to get your insights today into to culture and I, I guess some of the, the key elements of, of culture as it plays out between people from different countries, I guess. But to start mm-hmm. with, you know, what is this thing, culture? Yeah, that's a good question. And if you go to various academic sources, uh, consensus around it is limited. But in general, um, how I like to define it is it's a lens through which we see the world, our lens through which we see the world. Um, And all of us have slightly different tints on that. So it would be based around our norms, our values, our belief systems. Um, and that generally comes at a societal level. So you would you would hear a lot about national culture. So that would be, for example, I'm I'm Irish. So growing up in Ireland, I grew up with certain norms, values, beliefs, what I believed was right and wrong that was handed down from my parents, um, from social groups that I was with. So I guess put simply, it's it's the way we do things around here. And that's gonna really be different in different countries and also not only in different countries every national culture has a variety of subcultures so if we just take you know in Ireland um, as I'd mentioned to you I'm from Tipperary I live in Galway I work in Dublin and there's three completely different subcultures going on there so while we have this like overarching national culture it's also really important If you're looking, especially in business, if you're looking at, you know, you're doing business with another country, not only to look at their national culture, but also the region in which that company that you're doing business is located, because there will be there will be differences even at that level. And also, I guess culture. It's funny because culture is made up of, like I said, a variety of things, but most often we're judged on what's visible. Okay, so like if 
I met or someone met me and they're from, I don't know, uh, Sudan. We look very different. So we would go on our visible differences. So things that are, you know, that we can see. Um, and But that only makes up 10% of who we are. So you're gaining very little insight. So you need to drill deeper into, you know, the various layers of culture to go down to really the base layer at the subconscious. So like deep, deep, almost down in the ocean where the submarine is and investigate what's what's there. And that's really hard to decipher. So it takes a long time to do that, uh, to really understand why people think the way they think. And in order to do business across cultures, you need to understand that. Um, because if you're trying to negotiate with a different culture and you don't understand the nuances um, and the differences that exist there, and you assume it's going to be the same as in your own culture, um, you're in for a big shock. So, um, yeah, in essence, I would say culture is the way we do things around here, but the way we do things around here differs everywhere. I've heard that uh, definition that you, you put it there, the way we do things around mm -hmm. here, used in, in other contexts, and particularly in the context of organizational cultures. Mm -hmm. uh, given that, that many organizations these days will spread across m different cultural and national boundaries, what then is is the difference between say the national culture and organizational culture? Hmm. Yeah, and that's actually a really interesting point. So first, what I'll do is I'll let, uh, I'll I'll define what organizational culture is and sure. what the difference is. Um, but they're not separate in a lot of ways, and then I'll explain how that is the case. So, you know, in essence, organizational culture is absolutely how we do things around here in a company. OK, and um, so it'll be written in, for example, to the mission statement, the values of the company. It's often, you know, distilled down from top level management of this is what we like to do if we're, you know, group orientated, teamwork, productivity, motivation. And um, so it, it's really organizational culture is how an organization itself would like to operate. How this kind of some merges a little bit with national culture is that the management system or the mission or the belief values will often come from the organizational's home culture. Um, so let's, if we take America um, and Dell, okay, so you would have a lot of, you know, um, high performance teams, management systems, the values that are created are actually coming from a little bit of the, the, the host or the home country. But when companies move abroad and they set up subsidiaries, then they're faced with, okay, so a lot of our missions and values of our organizational culture traditionally have reflected the thoughts, values, and beliefs of the national culture to a certain degree. But now we're moving to a different culture that doesn't align with our home country. So, you know, really smart companies will adjust and they will say, okay, so now we're in India, for example, we need now to say, okay, well, certain norms and values and beliefs that we would have held in America, we need to slightly alter those to get the best from our employees and also make our employees feel recognized. So different motiv motivational strategies might have to change, et cetera, based on that. So while they're two separate concepts, they're actually interlinked a lot as well, because if you take um, Euro Disney, for example, so, you know, everyone is, is very familiar with, you know, Disney in America and, the you know, you have Disney University and it's you go and get a degree on how to be a Disney employee. Um, and when they set up in France, um, in Paris, you're talking about two very, very different cultures there. 
So, you know, at the beginning, there was a lot of turbulence around that and, and you know, trying to adapt the Disney culture. I know, is that is that adaptable? Because people are going there for the magic. You know, if you want to go to Disney for, you know, the rides, you'll probably go to a different a different sure. resort. You're going there for this magic that is created. Um, so there was a lot of, you know, controversy around that when when Euro Disney started up even. So there's always like a, the interplay with each other, but they are two separate um, constructs. And one of the things I remember hearing about the, the Disney example was something apparently as simple as a glass of wine. Mm-hmm. But in, in Disney in America, and it's many years since I was at Disneyland, I was a child, so I wasn't buying wine at the time. <laughs> Alcohol is is not available and that's fair enough. Uh, mm-hmm. But in, in France, people, when they had lunch, wanted to have a glass of wine. And yet that wasn't part of the, the Disney culture, the Disney ethos and values. So it was perhaps a challenge there. Yeah, exactly. And even down to cigarettes. So in, in the US, you know, if you're in, in Disney, if you want to have a cigarette, you they've actually really smartly designed it. Um, now, I haven't been there for a while, so this may have changed since then, but they had like little alcoves that you wouldn't even see. You were hidden behind like a tree and you could have your cigarette, but also no one would really know you were doing that. And then you go to Paris, where whereas at the time smoking was almost something that all the elite did. And it was like, it, it was, it was, it was a popular thing to do. So like they couldn't understand why you couldn't smoke on the streets in Disney. And that was not only from the staff working at Disney uh, that were largely Parisian or French, but it was also from the French people going to visit Disney. They couldn't understand, well, why can't we do this? Because it, it was just so different. So, I mean, organizations really have to adapt their organizational culture to reflect the country that they're entering to. And that way you put it there or that question, why can't we do this sort of really, I think perhaps sums it up in a lot of ways. It's like, well, why can't we? Because this is how we do things around here. And yet, and I guess, obviously, we're talking there about Disney, but any other company going from, say, one country and one culture to another would possibly experience those same challenges. In order to grapple with some of those um I guess, challenges. Does it, I guess, require a touch of of, of what you discuss in your research as cultural intelligence? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Cultural intelligence. I mean, it comes under various forms. You know, it's coined even as extreme leadership. So it it goes beyond, I guess, the easiest way to, to define this is we're we're all very familiar with what diversity management is, okay? And um, so cultural intelligence goes beyond that. It goes beyond recognizing biases and acknowledging, let's say, the importance of cultural sensitivity. Instead, cultural intelligence places emphasis on cultivating essential skills that then allow or enable your workforce or people to achieve their goals which in general would be to collaborate effectively across diverse um, cultural settings. So it's providing people with the skills to do that. Um, And there's various ways you can do it. So the easiest way without without using the so cultural intelligence, you have metacognitive, cognitive, behavioral, motivational. But, you know, what are they? Okay, so you'd start out with what is, you know, motivational CQ or CQ drive. Okay, so that's like. How driven is someone to learn about different cultures? Okay, how much do you want to understand the differences? So that's really important. If you you don't want to do that, I 
more than likely you're not going to be very successful in international <laughs> business, but maybe you don't want to be. But, you know, so it starts with the drive, the want to do that. And from that, then you kind of go, OK, I want to do this. Now I have to get the knowledge. So this is the knowledge CQ. So, you know, based on the motivation that you have, what exactly do I need to know about other cultures to move forward with what I want to do? Um, and then once you get that knowledge, um, you then start to formalize your strategy. OK, so C CQ strategy. So, OK, now I have the motivation to do it. I've acquired the knowledge. Maybe let's say you were going to Australia. So I've looked up about Australian customs, about their norms, their values. I've done a lot of research. I've read the local papers. I've listened to the, the radio stations. Maybe even I've, I've gotten cultural training right from a professional on this. Now I want to do business or I want to merge or I want to negotiate uh, with someone in Australia. Based on the knowledge now that I have, how can I strategize the best way to do that? So it could be about, um, you know, you you, pre you prepare for the interaction before it happens. So how do Australians like to negotiate? Um, are they planners? Are they direct communication? Are they indirect? What's their nonverbal communication style like? So there's various elements that go into that. And then you have the great fun of then after your strategy, putting your CQ stills to practice. So then it's OK, now I'm here. How do I do it? So I've strategized that I know I need to do this. And this is the part where people it takes practice. It's not going to be, you know, you're not going to go to a new culture, sit in in a meeting and, you know, have the motivation, acquire the knowledge, have your strategy, and then it just rolls perfect. It's not. But what it is going to do is when you realize there's a long pause in a meeting and you're waiting for someone to answer, and let's say it's in Japan, you already know there is going to be a long pause. It could last for one or two minutes, be comfortable in it, say nothing and they will respond don't break that silence um so you get to put those skills and the more you do this and the more you interact the better your skills will be but always i guess this awareness that it's not going to be perfect um and also be very aware that if you're doing business let's say as my example there with the japanese they're also learning how to do business with you so it's not a one-sided um approach here so, you know, just looking at even nonverbal communication styles, for example, you know, in Ireland or the US, you know, having somewhat of a strong visual eye contact with a client um, is really important. We, we see it or we read into it because of our cultural beliefs that it's a sign of sincerity. It's, and then you go to more Asian countries and it's the polar opposite. Um, having direct eye contact is actually a negative. It's seen that you're trying to tell them you're better than them. Or so, you know, understanding that, you know, if you're in Asia, not to have direct eye contact and when they don't have it with you to understand that it's not that they're not sincere. They're trying to be respectful. It's a completely different um, approach. And those skills would continuously evolve as you as as you, uh, I guess, cross borders, even if it's just for travel, you're going to you're going to learn this as you go along. You focus there on, on sort of learning those skills. So does that suggest that cultural intelligence is not an innate skill that it's it is something that people have to learn or 
or, or are some people just maybe a little bit more culturally intelligent anyway than others? No, I think we're born with no cultural intelligence. It's something that we learn. Our parents are our first learning point. And then it's then people start to diverge. OK, so, you know, if you're let's say your mom and your dad are from two different cultures, but straight away there you're learning the differences as a kid. Or if you travel, if your parents travel to various cultures, if they were expats and you you had that opportunity to live in different countries, clearly you're going to be more culturally intelligent just by default because of that. Mm. But, you know, that's not to say that you can't learn it. You can most certainly learn it. I mean, all my consultancy is training people how to do this. Um, so it can be learned. And the only thing, the only thing you need to learn is to be motivated to want to do it. That's it. That's all that it requires. And from that, then you can either try to increase your cultural intelligence yourself, which is, which is easy if you just want to do it for travel. I mean, it's it, it's as simple as researching, understanding. There is one thing I always say um, is just be careful of like a single story um, about a, a country or a region have the ability to critically evaluate what you read and not take what you read for for the truth okay mm. so you know we have media everything all this information is there it's just being able to kind of decipher well is that just a story that's been spun or is this the reality um, and then you have for companies or people who want to to delve deeper you have cultural training that that you know for example at trinity i teach all my courses are on um it's either called cross-cultural or intercultural management. Um, and then, you know, you have executive education programs that will do it. Or, for example, like the consultancy I do, just working with businesses and, and doing it as well. So there's various ways in which you can you can become culturally intelligent. But a, a prerequisite to all of that is to want to enhance your cultural intelligence to start with. As you were talking there, and I want to come back to the single story point in just a moment, but as you were talking there, I was kind of seeing links almost in my head to some of, say, the big five personality traits and particularly mm-hmm. openness to experience. Is, mm-hmm. is that just me kind of imagining things or, or is there potentially a link there between someone who is, has high openness to experience and someone equally who is also perhaps a bit more curious about other other cultures and ways of doing things. Yeah, I, I can see why you would see that linkage for sure. I mean, there's yeah, openness to 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 new ideas, understanding as well that your culture isn't the best culture, I think also is 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 really important. Sometimes as well, do you know it's funny because you can you can meet somebody out randomly from another culture and how you approach that conversation will determine what you learned from it. So, you know, as long as you approach somebody else from another culture with curiosity, generally it's received well. Um, if you have a, a kind of a tone of being derogatory or or thinking, oh, well, why do you do that? That doesn't make sense. That That's a shutdown conversation right there. So having the ability and the skills in your personality and how you reflect that. And again, a lot of this can be can be learned as you go along. But absolutely, you know, between the big personality, uh, the traits, um, you could definitely make linkages there. You know, you could say that, you know, if you're more extroverted, people might 
not that they'll have more opportunities to use those skills to learn from their mistakes. Whereas if you're more introverted, it may be that little bit more difficult for you. So you can acquire all the knowledge, you can learn about it. But when it comes to actually using your skill set, you may be just a little bit more timid or or more introverted. Um, so it just may take you that little bit longer, but it it, it doesn't mean you can't get there. Okay. As I said, I just want to come back to that, you know, one single story uh, perspective. And that's always been my fear or perhaps concern with, say, intercultural training, that it's sort of boiling things down to, you know, in Australia, this is how you negotiate. In Japan, this is how you negotiate, as opposed to recognising actually there are quite significant differences in mm-hmm. many countries between different parts of the country, different tra- traditions, different subcultures. Is that a, a fair danger to highlight? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you look at any of, you know, um, how con- how culture is measured, largely it's me- measured at a country level, which is exactly what you said there. So it, it, it's a mean average. Uh, so you'll administer questionnaires and you will get the average of of the country. Now it's it's becoming more. So, you know, that was great as a starting point to do something like that. But but as research continues, you know, it's now becoming more detailed. So you'll have your country level and then now you can drill down into certain regions in certain areas and, and establish, well, they work different from those and a lot of this as well is 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 common sense to a large degree, just because, for example, uh, this is a stereotype, just because all Irish people drink doesn't mean I'm drinking right now. Mm-hmm. So you need to be able to decipher as well between obviously some stereotypes hold true. OK, so it, it's a, a broad, very broad generalization it, it can be used to kind of go oh that's interesting uh, but you need to park it and then research it more to understand um the various aspects so you know you'll have Hofstede's cultural dimensions which I guess probably are the most prominent that most people would have heard of um, so for example you know you'll have power distance so he looks um at power distance so how different cultures accept or respect authority um, and that varies across cultural um cultural nations but you need to kind of drill down further into that too and so the glow project that uh, that you mentioned at the beginning that i'm involved in uh, the glow project has taken several of hofstede's cultural dimensions and also added to them so unfortunately the study of 2020 as you can remember <laughs> COVID hit. Uh, so it's been so the glow project um looks at uh, i think we have about representation of 96 percent of the world uh, so it's really extensive um and when the research actually comes out, so that's why I'm saying it, it, it is delayed, but it will be groundbreaking on a lot of these um, aspects. And also we tr- um, the interlinking here of how other how countries trust, how people trust in different societies, because if you think of anything um, that you do in business or in a personal context, you need to be good at interacting with people. OK, right now may be different in the future, but most of your negotiations will be with humans um, and not with machines. So therefore, you need to understand how can you adjust and adapt your style to fit with the person that you're speaking to to get the most out of that scenario. So, you know, understanding all of this moving forward um, is, is really, really important. 
it's an interesting link you made there to machines and i'd never really i guess thought about that but what impact would you see i guess growing out of artificial intelligence is it going to should we expect for example artificial intelligence machines chat gpt etc to be more monocultural, uh, perhaps <laughs> reflective of who created them, or perhaps who did create them, because we they're creating themselves, etc. Is there an answer at this point? Yeah, you know, it's something that I've been mulling in my head, and I almost half regret mentioning now. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, you're fine. But it is a really interesting uh, scenario, because um, what I was actually, how I was mulling this in my head was that you had mentioned, I do a lot of research um, on doctors and the healthcare system. So in Ireland, we bring in a lot of non-EU doctors to service um, our healthcare. So I advocate for these doctors to receive cultural training so that they're prepped for when they come here. And I was only thinking the other day, you know, if if AI goes to the point or 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 even if robots go to the point that they can be this point of contact in a hospital for a patient, you know, how bad would that be on a cultural level in the sense that it could be programmed to be able to pick up maybe even on an accent or, you know, you were programming the information and be able then to deliver it um, in the correct manager, man, in the correct manner to the patient. But I mean, this is a far stretch. This was mm. me, you know, probably I should have stopped thinking at that point. Um, <laughs> so I think down the road, it, it may, I, I have no idea. I'm not a, a tech expert in any of this, but, you know, even with chat, GDP, I have put in things about culture and, and seen what it's thrown back to me. And to be honest, I, I, I find it quite impressive. It's not that it's certainly not 100% correct, but it, it's it's interesting um, and it'd be really interesting space to watch moving forward if this could help us to prep for those interactions really well. Yeah, absolutely. We've already, uh, I guess, touched on a number of examples of how cultural intelligence can sort of interplay with organizations. So the Disney example, Dell and so on. But are, are there any specific steps that you could suggest for, for leaders who not so much wanted to enhance their own cultural intelligence, so that's important as well, but actually are more interested in maximizing the cultural intelligence of their organization overall? Yeah, absolutely. It's a great question. And um, organizations have been toying with this for so long. So organizations today, clearly, they want great global leaders, okay, because we're not just dealing in our own culture anymore. But at the same time, when they're asked, what's the, the hardest thing or the worst thing that you do, it says, well, cultivating those great global leaders. So there's a massive mismatch. Um, and to be honest, it's not rocket science how to, how to solve that. It's you train people. You, I mean, if you want somebody to work on a production line, you train them on how to do that. It's the same here. If you want someone to be able to communicate across cultures, you train them on how to do that. If it's not something that you can do in-house, you source it from outside and you bring in that training. Um, so, I mean, for, for managers or leaders that want to have a global workforce, start initiating things that allow that to happen um and you know through to recruiting in or external people to help um identifying well what cultures do we do business with the most or you know what clients do we want to market to or how you know any of that identify what you need and the countries that you need it in and then find the training and 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 provide it to your staff to do that 
As we're finishing up then, if someone wanted to find out some more about your research into cultural intelligence, or perhaps even some of the, the, the consultancy work that you do, uh, is there any particular website or any particular resource that you could suggest? Yeah, um, so I guess I'm really basic when it comes to um, being on the internet. So I, I I think I might have a Twitter, but don't contact me because I never look at it. Um, <laughs> so really LinkedIn, I, everything that I do, I I I it's on my LinkedIn um, website. So maybe you could just share that. Um, and there's a link then on my LinkedIn website to the cultural consultancy. It's EN cultural consultancy, but I mean, you just message me um, on LinkedIn or if, you know, on any academic thing, if you put in Emer Nolan Trinity College Dublin, you know, that account turns up. Um, but yeah, just, uh, I'm not on all the social media <laughs> networks that I should be on, um, but LinkedIn and um just through the Trinity email also. Okay, that, that sounds great. Professor Eamon Olin of Trinity Business School in Dublin, thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much, Lawrence. Thank you. Yeah.